So here's my question. Where'd they get the water? Where'd they get the water? I mean, you have to remember the story, right? Elijah has gone in front of the king and has proclaimed that there will be neither dew nor rain until I say so, thus saith the Lord. God has been faithful to that promise, and it is now three plus, almost three and a half years later. Three and a half years later. There has been no rain, and there has been no dew. No dew. I mean, it's one thing to go through a dry season. I lived in Fresno, California for 11 years. It used to not rain for almost eight months. I know what dry seasons are like, but three and a half years? With no rain and no dew? The miracle here is not that God just shut up the heavens and that there was no rain. The miracle is that there was no dew. God had to take all the water out of the atmosphere to ensure the fact that there would never be any dew. So there is no water anywhere to replenish all of the water everywhere that's drying up. So after three and a half years, everything has dried up. The rivers, the wells, the runoff, it's all dried up. So where'd they get the water? Even Elijah's uh, actions after he makes the pronouncement show the fact that this process really did happen. He goes to the Wadi Cherith, uh, and he drinks from a brook, uh, and he's fed from ravens. Isn't that idyllic? What a wonderful scene. Until you realize what a wadi is. You know what a wadi is? It's a washout. The only time there's rain in the wadi, or the only time there's water in the wadi, is when it rains, and rains so hard that it creates a temporary river. So by the time, <laughs> by the time Elijah gets there, there is no rain. And so the wadi is not this nice flowing river by an oasis with the, you know, trees and all that kind of stuff. After a while, it starts to dry up. By the end of his time there, he's drinking muddy water out of a stagnant pool, and he's being fed by ravens. Now, there's an appealing thought, isn't it? The scavengers of the air get to bring you food? (laughs) How... I have a feeling by the end his, um, his diet may consist of soggy matzo balls and some worms. I don't think this is nearly the kind of idyllic setting that we think it is. And it all dries up. It all comes to an end. And he has to move because there's been no rain and there's been no dew and everything has started to dry up. He goes to the widow at Zarephath. Zarephath is not in Israel. It's outside of Israel. The drought has become so large that it's beyond the nation of Israel. And he gets there to this woman who is walking through the town 
gathering some sticks so she can make one last meal and then die. She's going to make cakes for herself and for her, her son, and that's all she's got. She's got a little bit of oil. She's got a little bit of flour. She's going to bake a couple of cakes. They're going to eat it, and then they're going to die of starvation. And Elijah, with uh, what can only be described as divine chutzpah, I love that word. You get to, I love Hebrew. You get to spit in the middle of it. I think in that, that really isn't, Dr. Patrick, isn't that really the key to Hebrew? You get to spit in the middle of it. It's chutzpah. See, I spit. There it is. He says to the widow, he says, um, bake me one. And she says, well, I only got enough for my son and I, and then we're going to die. He goes, that's okay. Bake me one. You got to love the humility and the service that Elijah has. Uh, bake me one. So she figures, I think rightly, what's the difference whether you have one cake or whether you have half a cake or three quarters of a cake? You're going to die ever, anyway. It is, so she shares it with the guy, using up all the flour and all the meal. Next day, he gets up. Oh, he goes, man, what a beautiful day. He says, what's for breakfast? And she goes, you don't understand. We ate the last of anything that there is anywhere in this village last night. He goes, no, no, no. He said, make me a cake. I want some breakfast. And she says, oh, if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. And she goes over and she gets the jars to show him that there's no meal and there's no oil left. But to her surprise, there is meal and oil left in these two jars. And she's thinking to herself, I could have sworn I used it all up last night. My mind must be playing tricks with me because I haven't had enough to eat. So she bakes everybody a cake. Now they're going to die. And then he gets at lunch and says, uh, where's lunch? And she keeps going back to the cupboard again and again and again. And there's just enough oil and there's just enough flour to make another cake for that meal. She uses it all up. And then she's got to trust at the next meal that when she pulls it out, there's going to be enough for one more meal. And day after day after day after day, week after week after week, she pulls it out, and there's just enough to eat. No water, mind you. Oil and flour. So my question is, where'd they get the water? Nobody's got water, right? Everything has dried up. Everything's become, well, barren and arid. So where did they get the water? So there comes this contest. Elijah comes walking back in after being in Zarephath, out of the country. He comes walking back into Israel, and he's this troubler that's making all this difficulty. And he goes, no, no, no. He said, let's have a contest. He said, we'll settle this once and for all. And the contest is not about water. The contest is about fire. He says, you get a, we'll get two bulls up here. You sacrifice one. I'll sacrifice the other. We'll, we'll cut the bulls up. We'll lay them on the altar. And then the God who consumes it by fire is the true God. And all the Baal prophets go, hey, that sounds good. And you know why they say, hey, that sounds good? Because Baal is the God of fire. You guessed it. He's the God of fertility. He's the God of crops. He's the God of fire. And so this is right up their alley. And so they're all excited because 
this is a contest where Baal is going to win. And all of the Hebrews are sitting around saying, well, you couldn't have picked a worse contest, Elijah, to have. He's the god of fire. Apparently, the institutional memory of the crowd is so small that they've forgotten that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they were guided every day by a pillar of cloud, and they were protected every night by a pillar of, um, of um, fire. That's right, fire. They probably have forgotten that in all of the sacrifices that they make that are such an essential part of their faith and of their religion, that what they do is they bring the offering, whether it's animal or grain, into the temple, into the tabernacle to offer it to God, and the offering is then burn up. The essential part of what it means to be an, Israel, an Israelite, a Jew at worship, is to understand fire. Do you remember young Samuel when he is being raised in the temple by Eli the night that he gets this great revelation? Where is he? He's in the tabernacle sleeping by the altar because he has to wake up several times during the night to make sure that the fire doesn't go out on the altar. So apparently they've forgotten all of this, that all of this has any kind of apparent memory or importance. And so they say, yeah, that sounds good. And so Elijah says, you guys go first. And the prophets of Baal began to plead for lightning and for fire. They pray for storms. After all, Baal's the god of storms. Please, O oh God, consume. God is the god, the Baal is the god of weather. He's the god of storms. He's the god of fire. And yes, he's the god of rain and of water. If you can't get your god to produce rain, in three and a half years, what makes you think he's going to produce fire in three and a half hours? But you gotta give them, you gotta give them their their just due. They're determined. They're out there yelling, screaming, dancing, cutting themselves, bloodletting. They're really going at it full throttle. And of course, nothing is happening. And Elijah uh, proves a theological point that I have come to firmly believe, and that is that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. Um, I'm, I'm particularly grateful for this. <laughs> Amen. Um, because he starts mocking them. He starts mocking their God. And, and, and I couldn't help but put into the reading um, the, the verse out of the Living Bible, because it's in there. That when he starts mocking Baal, he says, perhaps you ought to shout louder because your God is out sitting on the toilet. I, I, I just, I love that that is, is in there somehow because he mocks Baal and he mocks his prophets. As all of this is going on, amazingly, it is Elijah, the one who has put the parameters of the contest about fire, who suddenly and unexpectedly introduces, of all things, water into the occasion. Now, 
the ridiculousness of this is obvious because if the contest is about fire, you don't want to have water anywhere near. But this doesn't seem to bother Elijah. And the fact that it hasn't rained in three and a half years doesn't seem to phase him either. He still calls for water to be part of the sacrifice. And he, what he does is he calls for them to fill these four large jars, water parts, pails with water and pour it on the offering. And I tried to find out, because, you know, you got to do exegesis. Amen, amen, all right. So I tried to find out what does this mean, these four large jars. And there were some commentators that believed that the best translation of this was pails, that you would get a pail of water, rather large pail of some sort, the kind you would lower down into a well and, and pull back up. And you'd get two of them and put them on a stick and then put the stick on your shoulders, and that's how you'd carry the water. And so that may be why there are, it's, it's listed as four large water jars because you had to have two to balance each other out on the stick as you carried them. Other commentators said, no, 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 this is not pails. This is literally jars, big jars that were used ceremoniously. And what they would do is they would put the jar filled with water or empty, whatever it may be, and they would put it on their shoulders and they would carry this large jar on top of their shoulder. Whatever it is, it's a whole lot of water that have to be put in these things. It says in, in several translations, it tries to give you an idea to talk about how much this trench was. And the trench is, is filling up with like, uh, I, I don't know, it's like a, a bunch of seed. Uh, it's, it's quarts and quarts of things. And so Elijah, well, he has them go and get the water to fill up and to douse the offering. And my question is, where does he get the water? It's not like he's asking them to get a cup of water, big jars, pails, something, enough to cover the offering <coughs> and to cover it in such a way that the trench that is around the offering, the trench is filled with water. How much water do you have to pour on the ground that hasn't had dew or rain for three and a half years? How much water do you have to pour onto parched land in order to get it to fill up a trench? Whatever this is, it's an enormous amount of water. And here's my other question. How much does water cost at this point? If you can't get water and there's no dew and their wells are all dried up, what's the expense of this? And he has them go and do it three times. So where in the world do they get the water? Some commentators said they went to the Mediterranean. Well, that seems like a long haul to try and do it three times. <laughs> And I, I don't think they went that far. So where did they get the water? Who's got water? Because if you've got it, it's worth a king's ransom. Oh, well, that reminds me who has water. Surely there's water in the palace. Surely Ahab and Jezebel have some source or access to water in the palace. So do you think the servants got up and went to the palace and took the 
the water that's worth its weight in gold from Ahab and Jezebel in their palace? I, I don't think so. Even if they thought about it, I'm sure there were guards that were guarding both the crown jewels and the source of water because they were both worth about the same amount. So they can't go to Ahab and Jezebel's to get water because, you know, it's good to be the king, so he's got water. So where else in the capital city of Samaria, where else in the world would they have water? Well, there's only one other place that has a substantive amount of water. And guess where that is? It's at the temple of Baal. Because Baal is the god of water. And guess what? The servants go down and go into the temple to get the water. And nobody's there to stop them. You know why? Because the 450 prophets are all up on the mountain. So they walk in, get the water, and sneak out and say, Phew. and then they get up there and he says, dump it on, dump it on the offering. And I'm thinking that these guys are going, ah, 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 ah. It's painful to dump out that much value. And then he has the audacity to say, do it again, do it again. Then he simply prays. And God answers from heaven and laps up the offering, the rocks, the stones, the wood, and, and, and the water. Because the water does not belong to Baal. The water belongs to God. When are we going to stop chasing after the gods of culture, the gods of popularity, the gods that we seem to fashion in our own making? We seem to fashion them out of our desires and wants, out of the things that we think are important. When are we going to stop following after the bales of sensuality and sexuality? And realize that these are things that cannot produce life or fire or water or transform lives. See, one of the problems of the church today is that we are seeking water rather than the God who makes the water. We're seeking to, be, to have our thirsts quenched, but not our lives transformed. We want the show. We want the spectacle. But not always the God who makes the transformation. When is the church going to cry out and proclaim that the gods of culture and expedience can only produce what our hands make, but they have no power to rain glory down from heaven? There's a There's an old story about some scientists who um, made an announcement that they had discovered how to create human beings in the exact same way that God had done it in Genesis. 
that they could create human beings from the dust of the ground. And so they challenged God, and God accepted the challenge. And so they met on a great plane, just the scientists and God, to create a human being from scratch, from the dust of the ground. And so God said, are you ready? And the scientists said, yes, we're ready. And they were eager and they were excited. And he said, then let us commence. And with that, the scientists reached down and they grabbed some handfuls of dirt because they were going to recreate this just like God did in Genesis. And they picked up the dirt and they had it in their hands and God stopped them and said, wait a minute, get your own dirt. Where did they get the water? They got the water from the same place that you get anything and everything. For the water did not belong to Balaam. The water belonged to God. He is the source, not just of our hope, but of our, the ground of our being. He is the source of our community together. He is the source of our fellowship. He is the source of our hope, and he is the source of our life, both now and the life that is to come. All the Baals, all the Asherahs, all the gods of this earth cannot assure us of the greatness that God can assure us of, for he created the dirt just like he created the water. He is the source of all things. Remember that. Remember that when your life is out of tune. Remember that when you're sitting there counseling someone and their lives are out of kilter. Remember that when you are in a place where someone comes and cries out to you out of their own drought depression and dryness where they've had no water and no dirt. Remind yourself and somehow find a way to remind them that the only place there is to quench the thirst that you have is to go to God. Even Jesus said, I am living water. He who drinks from me will never thirst. Would you stand with me?